I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking to Chris Byer, Director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Public Health and Human Rights and the Johns Hopkins Fogarty AIDS International Training and Research Program. Dr. Byer co-authored a recent perspective article on the beginning of the end of AIDS. Dr. Byer, in your article, you describe a number of scientific advances against HIV in recent years. Which of these do you think is the most significant or the most promising? Well, I have to say, uh, I think there's a general consensus that that, uh, one of the most powerful new findings, and indeed one of the ones which which has led to this thinking that we might be able to control epidemic transmission of HIV uh, at population levels, is, is the understanding that early and successful antiretroviral therapy is a potent preventive intervention as well as a, a key treatment intervention. Uh, and those findings really come out of the uh, study known as HPTN-052, the HIV Prevention Trial Network uh, study of discordant couples where one or, or, or the man or woman, uh, these are all heterosexual couples, uh, is living with HIV. Uh, and basically early treatment was provided to the infected partner, uh, and it showed 96% efficacy in reducing transmission to the uninfected partner. And that has really opened up a whole new uh, approach to thinking about uh, epidemic control. The title of your perspective article, The Beginning of the End of AIDS, sounds very optimistic, but despite advances in science, you also highlight several obstacles that prevent us from achieving complete control of the epidemic. Some of those are social, stigma and discrimination, for example. There are also other barriers, such as non-adherence to antiretroviral regimens. In your view, are those obstacles things we should be attacking country by country, or is there some of the solutions that are generalizable? Well, that's a great question. I think, first of all, in terms of stigma and discrimination, certainly one thing we've seen is that uh, treatment and the availability of uh, widespread uh, HIV testing and treatment services uh, have had an enormous impact on reducing fear and stigma. Uh, After all, before uh, antiviral therapy uh, became available, of course, this was a uniformly fatal infection uh, and a very difficult death, and people were right to be uh, afraid of it, although, of course, uh, that led to much stigma and discrimination against people living with the virus. Treatment really has changed that dynamic in many countries. However, of course, uh, there are subpopulations, uh, and in some settings, uh, the majority of infections, uh, for example, Eastern Europe and Central Asia, are among people who use drugs, injection drug users, and those populations uh, still face enormous stigma and discrimination, legal barriers uh, to treatment and care. And indeed, that is one part of the global epidemic uh, which continues to expand in 2012. So we really do face some important challenges, and some of those are quite country-specific. A good example is that substitution therapy, which has been shown to have a very important impact on reducing HIV acquisition risk uh, in opiate users, um, is still illegal in Russia. Uh, There's no methadone, no buprenorphine, and uh, this has been an enormous barrier uh, to that country's getting control of its uh, HIV epidemic. I think the other issue that you raised, the question about adherence, in particular is a problem with some of the new uh, antiviral-based prevention approaches. So, for example, pre-exposure prophylaxis with Truvada, which was shown to be effective uh, in reducing HIV acquisition in men who have sex with men, it turns out that adherence is critical 
the same was found to be true in uh, the successful trials we've now had of vaginal microbicides, uh, topical uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis approaches that women could use to reduce uh, acquisition risk for men. Uh, there again, uh, you know, adherence turns out to be the Achilles heel of these approaches. There are just a wide array uh, of new studies, uh, mostly in the implementation science arena, trying to improve adherence uh, to the use of these agents. Some are cell phone-based, some are peer and buddy-based, uh, couples-based, and uh, we're optimistic uh, that we can do better. Uh, but of course, uh, this leads us to looking still at other technologies, most importantly HIV vaccines, uh, that would not be uh, anywhere near as adherence-dependent, and that probably are going to be critical to not just control epidemic spread, but really uh, reduce new infections dramatically. Another big obstacle, of course, is financial. The resources just don't meet the needs. Why has funding decreased, and, and what do you think it'll take to bring it back up again? Yeah, well, this this obviously is a critical piece of the puzzle. We, we are at something like uh, a little under half of people globally uh, who need to be on antiviral therapy getting it right now. And if we're going to realize the promises uh, of treatment as prevention and of these new technologies uh, to turn the epidemic around, we have to get way above 50%. Um, in the U.S., as an example, the estimate is that only about 28% of Americans living with HIV are successfully virally suppressed and therefore you know, have greatly reduced infectiousness. Uh, that is a resource gap, um, and it is substantial. I think you know, most analysts would, would argue that the decline in funding for AIDS has largely been driven by the global financial crisis uh, and the reductions on the part of a number of particularly uh, European donors. Um, but there are some really heartening trends. The first, which came out at the conference, uh, is that uh, 2011 appears to be the first year where in-country resources actually uh, account for a greater share of AIDS funding than donor aid. Uh, so countries themselves, and there have been leaders like South Africa and Botswana, uh, are really beginning to pick up more and more of this burden. That has to happen. There has to be a shared uh, responsibility and accountability and shared investment uh, going forward. Uh, a second trend I think is really important is that there are a number of regional leaders, often referred to as the BRICS, the Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, uh, who have not been uh, major donors uh, and players in their regions, uh, but but who are beginning uh, to, to move in that direction. That is going to be critical uh, to shore up the resource needs. The gap was estimated by UNAIDS uh, this year at roughly $7 billion dollars which is, of course, a substantial amount of money. But uh, given the potential now to turn the epidemic around, it looks highly cost-effective. And in some countries, even cost-saving, and that's been clearly demonstrated uh, with South Africa uh, and cost-effectiveness in India, again, a paper presented at the conference. Hillary Clinton has articulated the goal of an AIDS-free generation but others point out that even without AIDS, the world won't be free of HIV infection for a very long time. What do you think it would take in terms of policy, funding, science, social change to stop transmission of the virus? Well, that is a great question. I, I think, uh, you know, in articulating the AIDS-free generation and setting a goal, uh, Secretary Clinton and the Obama administration uh, and 
writ large, uh, really did, uh, did us all a tremendous service. It is very important to have a goal uh, and to articulate what what that goal means. Um, but indeed, in looking or uh, looking forward to the potential of an AIDS-free generation, we know that HIV is going to be with us for a long time. And as we get more and more people on treatment, of course, their life expectancy is now approaching uh, normal life expectancy. Uh, we're going to have many, many millions of people living with HIV and treated uh, worldwide for uh, a very long time. So, you know, we accept that. But... Uh, in terms of actually beginning to turn HIV transmission itself around, I think there are some critical uh, unresolved issues. First, we, we are going to need better use and deployment of the new ARV-based prevention technologies, and that would be specifically vaginal microbicides. Uh, there's a new uh, a, a ring that could probably uh, be inserted for up to a month uh, that we think is going to have a big impact uh, on dealing with the adherence concerns. Uh, we're going to need to get pre-exposure prophylaxis to uh, men who have sex with men probably is going to be a critical part of this. In terms of dealing with the funding gap in that $7 billion, uh, there are a number of initiatives underway, and I think one that, that uh, looks very promising is the idea of a uh, financial transaction tax that actually was put forward by uh, Francois Hollande, the new president of France, in a video address uh, at the conference. And uh, there, there is some real enthusiasm there for essentially having uh, the financial sector pay small transaction taxes that could cover the, the funding gap in HIV quite quickly. Scientifically, I think probably uh, an HIV vaccine uh, is an essential. Virtually all viral uh, epidemics uh, in humans that have been controlled and the only one that's been eradicated, smallpox, uh, have been done so with, with an effective vaccine. Uh, and, of course, we now have at least one trial with a positive signal, RV144, the uh, Walter Reed trial in Thai adults, that is at least pointing ways forward uh, particularly in the area of antibody-based uh, vaccine approaches or combination uh, vaccine approaches. That does lead, <laughs> for the first time anyway, uh, to some people thinking that this, too, is going to be possible. You mentioned the conference, the, the 19th International AIDS Conference that just ended in Washington. What would you say were the key take-home messages from that? Well, I think certainly the world coming together uh, and all the stakeholders and players in the AIDS response, governments, scientists, uh, community, people living with HIV, uh, the political leadership, uh, coming together and really agreeing on this shared goal of an AIDS regeneration is really something of a turning point. Uh, I, I think that that was critical. There is uh, very much a consensus that the first thing that really can be achieved is likely to be uh, dramatic reductions, virtual eradication of pediatric HIV transmission. And that is doable with the tools we have now. And uh, I think there was very much a renewed commitment and, uh, and a great deal of enthusiasm uh, for this being possible. I think uh, certainly a take-home message on the critical implementation of the tools we have now and figuring out their strategic use. So really a move toward implementation science as a next critical step, 
Uh, people have talked about efficiency and effectiveness, about combination, preventive and treatment interventions. Uh, that was very much a message that came out that going forward, we need to really use the tools of science to optimize uh, what we have now uh, and, and put the resources we have to the most effective use. Uh, I, I think that's that, that will be a, a defining outcome of the conference. So did the conference change your view of the future, either for better or worse? Well, uh, <laughs> it certainly uh, set many of us up with, uh, with a great deal more work to do. Um, I, think, I think one of the outcomes, uh, uh, unfortunately, on a, on a downside, was uh, a recognition, really, of the gravity uh, of some of the sub-epidemics underway and the huge challenges uh, we face uh, in getting control of those. And a good example is uh, the epidemic among minority men who have sex with men in the United States, uh, the, uh, the epidemics among drug users uh, in Eurasia. Uh, these are stubborn problems. Uh, and I think the, the conference underscored just how little progress we've made, uh, how far we have to go, and what a difficult task uh, those uh, responses uh, are going to be. Thank you, Dr. Byer. Thank you.